0: continuation of a series that we've been doing called Daniel's Story. And in Daniel's Story, we've, we've read all kinds of interesting stories so far. The first six chapters are history telling, and history stories are fun, and I've had a, an enjoyable time retelling those stories and trying to pull nuggets of, of truth. And there's so many that we, we've only gotten the one little facet here and there. So go back and study those again, look at them another time. They're lots of fun. But we're going to shift gears because Daniel chapter 7 is something quite different. The first six are history, but the last six chapters of Daniel are something called apocalyptic prophecy. How many of you, when you hear of the apocalypse, get excited? (laughs) Okay. Apocalyptic prophecy. Apocalyptic prophecy is characterized by a couple things. Number one, it's future telling, and number two, it has really strange symbols. Strange symbols can sometimes get you excited But more often than not, they get you confused. What? What did he say? So why does God give us these things? And I'd like to suggest three purposes, four purposes of prophecy, uh, of this kind of prophecy. One is to reveal God's character and his purpose. And I think that's the the important thing. God did not give us um, symbols and dates for us to sit there and scribble down and argue over what might happen in the future. That wasn't the purpose. His purpose is to reveal himself. So when we read through this, one of the first questions we need to ask is, what is God telling us about him? What does this show me about God? The second would be to look back and recognize that God knows the future. Most of the time, he doesn't give us enough detail to like sit down and look into the future and be like, this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and this will trigger that. He doesn't give us enough detail in the prophecies to do that. What he does give us enough detail to do is to read through it and go, wow, that did happen just like he said it would. And looking back, you know, they, they always say that hindsight is... 2020, right? Looking back, we can see clearly what God has done. And so as we look at this chapter, one of the things God wants us to to recognize is that this is God's word. It's revealed from him. It's not just Daniel's surmisings. This is something that Daniel could never have known. And the way that it unfolded through history reveals a divine power, a supernatural power that can see the future. How many of you can see the future? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> you can't. Nobody can see the future except the one who exists and, and created, exists beyond and created time. And that's, that's only God. So he can see the future. He tells us the future. We look back and see that it happened just like he said, and we say, you are God, you alone. And that's something he wants us to do. And then uh, the third point is that when we look forward to the things that he says will happen, because he does give us enough that we can sense the, the, the direction of where history is going to flow, we can have confidence in him. And when you think of the word apocalypse, most of us think of terrible things. In fact, something terrible happens and we say, that was apocalyptic. Because <laughs> it kind of reminds us of, I don't know, judgments and things the Bible says about uh, islands falling into the sea and whatnot. But that is not the primary purpose of the word apocalyptic. Uh, the apocalypse is about the revealing Right? And what is God revealing? It's that he knows the future and he's got the future in his hand. And if we, if we can trust him, I mean, if we know that he knows the future because we see what happened in the past, we know that we can trust him with the future, with our future. And that's, I think, where God wants us to focus our attention. When we look at the prophecies, they're not just about big world events. They're about my life. And so God invites us, this, in the fourth principle or fourth purpose of prophecy, he invites us to look to the future and prepare our hearts for the plan he has. So that, just with that in mind, um, I want to be, begin exploring this a bit. Um, there are a few things as we look at this prophecy that you've got to keep in mind. Number one, don't make assumptions. Don't try to guess what symbols mean. Let the Bible interpret it for you. And if the Bible hasn't given you the interpretation, then hold your conclusions until you find it in the Bible. I've, uh, I've done a little bit of digging preparing for this apocalyptic portion of Daniel. And there's some interesting ideas out there. And most of them I can't find in the Bible. They, they say, well, look at this verse. And I'm like, that's not what that verse is saying. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't connect with truth from the Bible. So let's start with the assumption that the Bible will tell us what it means. And let's let the Bible do the interpreting for us. Secondly, that the, the time of these prophecies that we're, reveal, or we're studying about begin at the time that the prophet lives. All these apocalyptic prophecies deal with time. And they, they usually deal with time beginning at the time of the prophet and extending down to some time in the end when the problem of sin is resolved. So that's, that's a really good place to start. Um, if you're studying something and it seems like these symbols are, are happening, ask yourself, when was this prophet alive? And probably much of what they're talking about begins in their life. But it doesn't all finish there. It extends through history until the, the end of evil and the end of sin. So that, that uh, expanse of time is really important when we think of apocalyptic prophecy. And third, when we talk about time, because apocalyptic prophecy is about time, when we talk about time, even time itself is symbolic. Its intention is not for you to see, um, a little bit later, we'll, we'll read about three and a half years Its intention is not for us to read three and a half years and think three and a half literal years because that time extends from the time of the prophet to the time of the end. That three and a half years ends up being 1,260 years, and we'll come to that in a minute. But time in in prophecy, time a day equals a year. So with that, let's open up to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. And in Daniel chapter 7, you begin with this statement in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, if you're you're tracking along with the book of Daniel, you you read about it, and it's it's Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. And then a little bit later, Nebuchadnezzar has his story. And a little bit later, it's Belshazzar. And then Belshazzar doesn't last very long. He gets taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And pretty soon, you have Darius on the throne, and then Cyrus is mentioned by the end of chapter 6. And now, suddenly, in chapter 7, we're back in chapter... five or even before chapter five. It's like, what's happening here? Daniel isn't organized chronologically. I mean, the first chapters are Daniel chapter one happens in 605 BC. That's when um, Israel was captured and and taken captive into Babylon by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter two probably happens within a year or so after that. Um, Now, just, just so you know, if you go online, and if you are to try to look at the chronology of Daniel, you are not going to see what you see on the screen right now. I, I have the hubris to think that I know something that, <laughs> that other scholars don't. Um, no, I, I've made some assumptions. Everybody makes some assumptions about some of these times, and uh, and so this is my best guess. I disagree with some of the people online. That's okay. Um, the, the, the dates aren't really the important part. But if if you look at it, kind of they progress. Daniel two, then Daniel three, then Daniel four, and then um, some scholars think it happens around five fifties that Belshazzar takes over, but, but I look at the story of Daniel chapter 5. It's in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, close to the beginning, that uh, Daniel 5 happens, and the Medes and the Persians take over. And um, some scholars think that Belshazzar lived before this, that he was actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and it was Belshazzar was his throne name, but his real name was Evil Murdoch. Isn't that a great name? How many of you are going to name your kids Evil Murdoch? I don't think it was evil Murdoch because in 1916, we found some documents that kind of came to light in the 1960s when they were translated from the the British Museum. And and we find that Belshazzar's name is mentioned and that he is the first oldest son of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who is the last king of Babylon and the king when Persia takes over Babylon. And we find that he is mentioned as co-regent. Both of their names are called out, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, as kind of a co-tribute. And they're both kings at this time. So if his third year is the time when Persia takes over, that's 539. His first year is just two years before that. That's just my math. So, you know, I don't know. Makes sense to me. 541 is when Daniel 7 happens. And then it's 539 that we find Daniel 8. And Daniel 5 then comes into play, and then it's after that, uh, that year that uh, Daniel 6 comes into the story, and, it, and everything wraps up in Daniel's life, around 537 or so, and, and he passes away. He's actually about 85 when he has the vision of Daniel 1, in the first year of King Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And it goes on to say, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Um, Well, Daniel, what are those main facts? What are the things that are in this story? So first of all, he says, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, the wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Oh, before we go to the second beast, um, we have a couple options. Option one is we take a couple hours and we dig into the details of this. And we look at all of the symbols and we try to figure out what do the wings mean and what about the standing up um, like, the, like a man and, and having the eyes like a man. What, what does all this mean and what's, what's the symbol of the sea or what's the four winds? We, we could go through that we don't have a couple hours this morning. So the other direction we're going to go is the direction that Daniel seven takes us. And that's the big picture of this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at all the components, all the players, and then we're going to ask, what, what is the interpretation? What's the Bible tell us that this means? And and how does this impact my life today? So let's keep going and uh, look at the next vision there. It says suddenly a second beast, like a bear, Um, It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring and breaking pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, from whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth, speaking pompous words. Now, we almost have all the players. You've got uh, the lion. You've got the bear. You've got the leopard with four heads. You've got this terrible beast that ends up having... 10 horns. And then there's this, this little horn. Keep all these things in your mind. These are important players. These are the main, the main pieces of the story. But there's one more player, two really, that you need to keep in mind. And we are introduced to that next player in uh, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now the story gets interesting. Ah, uh, yeah, the beasts and those are interesting. But this is where the story really takes off. And, and you might notice that in your Bible, things look different. If you're in Daniel chapter 7 and you're looking in your Bible, then you saw kind of regular paragraph going on until you got to verse 9. And then things change. Most Bibles put this into kind of a lyrical form or poetic form. And that's because Daniel's words changed. He became poetic when he started writing about this. And it's important, it's intentional that he does that. In, in his words, he's doing what he's trying to do what he actually did in his vision. At first, he's looking at the earth, and he's seeing stuff happening on the earth. But then suddenly, things change, and he looks up, and he sees something happening in heaven. And that's why he changes his form of writing. Let's keep reading in verse, uh, the next verse there. His garments uh, was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fire, uh, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand, thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. What is this scene that we're seeing? It's different. At First, you've got these weird beasts and these horns. And now you've got something happening in heaven. And this guy named the Ancient of Days sits down on some fiery throne, and uh, and and other people seem to be there, other beings are there, and books are opened, and it says the court was seated. So this is a, a courtroom scene in heaven. That's an interesting thought. And let's just make sure we don't have any doubt. Who is this ancient of days? Psalm 90 verse 2 makes it clear that before the mountains were born or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The ancient of days, the oldest person, oldest being in the universe is God because he has always existed. And Psalm says that he always will exist. So the ancient of days... Daniel looks up, he sees this heavenly courtroom scene, and then he hears something, and it changes his focus back to earth. He says, I watched then because the sound of the pompous words with which the horn was speaking, and I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And, you know, we, we can get lost in figuring out these details. I was thinking about it and getting a little bit lost this week. Um, wait, is that beast the horn? Or is it the beast that came before the horn, like the the, the the fourth beast that was thrown to the fire? And what about the other beasts that are allowed to continue for a time? And all these questions can come into your mind. And I'd encourage you, dig for the answers. You have a question, write it down, and don't be satisfied until you find an answer. Um, it's really good to study this stuff out. We're going we're gonna to skip to a Um, just the interpretation side on the other half of uh, Daniel 7. So hold this idea here for just a moment longer. Because in verse 13, the scene changes one more time. And it says, "I saw in the vision, in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. This is again in poetic form. So he's he's looked back down to earth for a minute. He's back up in heaven now. And uh, it says he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So that's the vision. That's all the players. You've got the, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the terrible beast, ten horns, a little horn, the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man. You got all that in your head? What does it all mean? Where is, where is this all going? Now, one option is we could, um, we could just make assumptions. We could say, well, the bear, that's about those people on Wall Street that think that things aren't going to go so well on the market. Is that what the Bible's talking about? <laughs> we could make all kinds of assumptions about what this means. And, uh, and, and honestly, most people do that. But that's not what Daniel did. In fact, the next verse, it says that Daniel was, was worried and he was concerned. And so what did he do? He says he went and he asked an angel that was there, one of the messengers that had come during his vision. He walks over and he's like, so what, what's all this about? And I suggest that that's what we should be doing. When we go to the Bible and we can't figure out what it means, we shouldn't just ignore it. We shouldn't just be like, "Uh, oh, well, strange. I'm not a theologian. What we should do is do exactly what Daniel did. We should ask the messenger, what does that mean? And I think that Jesus is faithful. His words are true. When he said the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth, he really meant it. So we should ask. God, please teach us. Help us to understand this. Verse 17. The, the messenger responds to his question. And he says, Those great beasts which are four are four... What are they? Kings or kingdoms which shall rise out of the earth. And uh, and then when you think about this, the the actual text said that they came out of the sea. So in the, the symbol, the, the sea is apparently actually the earth. And the beast isn't an actual animal coming out of water. It's a nation that rises up on the earth. My guess is that great sea which Revelation says represents peoples and nations and languages and and tribes. My guess is that great sea that he talked about was the Mediterranean Sea, where all the nations that he's he's describing uh, ruled either the north or the south or just east of them. Those kingdoms came up right around the Mediterranean Sea. But we could go into all kinds of detail on this. The angel doesn't jump into all those details. The angel, in the very next verse keeps our focus where he wants it to be. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. You see, the goal of apocalyptic prophecy isn't for us to, to like tick off the, the, the interesting events of history. The goal is for us to see that the God of heaven is the God who rules in the affairs of men and that he will conquer evil in the end. And that all of the, the people that love and follow him will inherit a, a new kingdom that God sets up, a kingdom that will not be destroyed, that will last forever and ever. The, the Bible says Daniel was a little worried. He, he saw these things and this stuff troubled him. And it makes sense um, I think a lot of these prophecies trouble us. Not, not just Adventists, although Adventists are, are one of the, the groups that are really into this future prophecy stuff. And so it probably troubles us more than most. But this kind of thing troubles us. We, we pay attention to it. We're tracking it in the news. We're trying to figure out what did this thing mean and what did that thing possibly connect with prophecy. It's something we care about. And, and so it's, it's not surprising that it troubles Daniel. He's curious, he's interested, maybe maybe he's a little bit worried. And I think we can pay attention to those details to our detriment. We can try to figure out all the details in in, in their minutiae so much that we lose the big picture. We lose the focus of where God wants to take us with this prophecy. And that's what happens in the end. Where is God leading us to? And, and it's to victory. Not because we're going to fight some great battle, but because he is the victor. He's wanting to tell you, I've got you. This future stuff might look scary. You might not understand it all. Uh, but don't forget, I'm the one who rules over the affairs of men. And I'm going to win this. But Daniel, he's a little like you and me. And he still wants to know the details. He's like, okay, good, good. But what does it mean? And, and then in Daniel 7, verse 19, it says, "...then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet." And then, and the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn, which came up before which three fell, namely that horn, which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Now, what's interesting about Daniel seven is that um, it's part of a bigger story. When you read Daniel seven, he doesn't describe what the lion or the bear or the leopard mean. He's, he kind of goes right into this fourth beast but Daniel 7 isn't a prophecy on its own. It's a, it's a piece of a larger story. In fact, uh, this graph helps me kind of visualize what's happening in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. And that vision describes Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. And the Bible tells us this. We're not guessing here. And uh, it, says, it says that those are the nations that are going to come after Babylon. And, uh, and then it says another nation's going to come. And that, that nation's going to be divided, you know, partly strong and partly weak. And then in the time of those kings, that there would be a, um, a rock that comes out of heaven and, and destroys all the, the nations of men and fills the whole earth. Right, that's, that's what we're told in Daniel chapter 2. Well, in Daniel chapter 7, you see the bigger dots? Um, Daniel 7, it gives more detail. For example, um, if you read about um, the uh, Daniel 2 with uh, the lion, I'm sorry, the, the head of gold, Daniel 7 says Babylon is like a lion with wings. And uh, when you look at, at the, the entryway, uh, that old Babylonian entryway that you can find in some museum, I forget where it is, but just look at that and you'll see a picture of a lion with wings. So a little bit more detail. We can nail it down and say, yeah, that was really Babylon. And then um, in, in uh, Daniel 2, it says that Persia had two arms, right? Well, in Daniel 7, the bear is raised up on one side. And we know historically Persia was the stronger of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the one that kind of got the, the more significant power in, in the empire, and so raised up on one side kind of makes sense. And then we know that Persia, Medo-Persia conquered Lydia and, and Egypt before going to Babylon, three ribs in its mouth, right? So little little details that help to clarify what we're talking about here are added when we get to Daniel 7. And you can see uh, Daniel 2, it kind of jumps through this little horn judgment phase, but Daniel 7 spends quite a bit of time describing a little horn and this heavenly judgment scene that happens. Daniel 8 adds to the story of the judgment but kind of skips over Rome and, uh, the, and, and the, uh, the ten horns. Um, it goes right to that little horn. Um, and then and spends more time on the judgment, Daniel 10 through twelve, same time period. It goes over the same period, but expands a little bit on different aspects of it. So this this principle helps us to understand what's going on in Daniel seven. So Daniel seven has the lion, Babylon, the bear, uh, um, Persia, and then the leopard, and that's Greece, and of course, I, I should say with Greece, you get very little. it's a bronze waste in, in chapter two. But in Daniel 7, we get all these additional details. It's a leopard, and it has wings, and uh, there seems like I've got a verse in here. Nope. Um, it, it has, we'll uh, go back. There we go. Thank you. It has, um, it has these wings, and, and the Bible says that, uh, I think it's Psalms 18.10. He rode on cherubs and flew. He came swiftly on wings of the wind. There's this idea in the Bible, wings are about speed and, and flying and stuff. And it's like Alexander the Great flew through the world as he conquered a larger portion than any empire before him, but he didn't have an heir. And, and it has a leopard with four heads. And, and uh, Alexander didn't have an heir, but he gave his kingdom when he died to his four generals. So the heads all through the Bible represents power and authority. So there's this details that the Bible is giving. And then you have after Greece, Rome comes on the scene. Rome ends up being divided first into the uh, Eastern and Western portions. And then the Western portion divides into 10 warring tribes. And, you know, we see all these things developing right through history. So let's keep reading. In the next verse, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints. This is that little horn that came up among the 10. It came up among those Western European tribes. And it, it tore three of them out, and we can find that in history too. Um, it says that he was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Now, in verse 24, the angel clarifies that this little horn is a small nation that would end up dominating the world. And it makes war... And is winning against God's people. Until. Until. And that's the whole point of the prophecy is this until. What happens when a, a group of people, a nation, a king, uh, a power, um, go, goes against God's people and defies God himself? And we can actually find that story in other places in the Bible. Just think about Daniel chapter 2. When, when this guy goes after Daniel... God stands up in his defense. Daniel chapter 3, when they, he demands worship, um, Nebuchadnezzar's got this big thing uh, about wanting to be worshipped in that moment, but God says no, and he protects his people. Right? And, and then in Daniel uh, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is like, look at this Babylon that I've made with all this pride and arrogance as though he is God. And God says no, and he humbles him for seven years. He eats grass like an animal. God is able to to come in and deal with the power that, that harms God's people. And uh, here in Daniel 7, in verse 25, it says that, that there three and a half years, a time, a times, and a half a time, this, this uh, power would oppress God's people, murder and torture and terrible things. And what we find is that, that uh, this little power that comes up from among the ten horns is the, the religious and political power of, of papal Rome. The Roman Catholic Church and it it rises to dominate all of all of Europe and many parts of Africa dominate it not just in the sense that its theology is everywhere but in the sense that kings can't be kings unless the papacy says so like they've got they've got political power they can raise up armies in fact the historical record shows that the oppression of God's people, the people that genuinely wanted to follow God and, and explore scripture, was so great that 50 million people over the process of, of just uh, six or 700 years, 50 million people were tortured and put to death. Many of them burned on stakes. Some of them beheaded. Many of them tortured in heinous ways. I can't describe. God, what, what, what proclaimed itself to be God's church acted against God's people, and it proclaimed itself with rebellious, the word pompous really means, um, oh, now the word just escaped me. Blasphemy, there we go. Like blaspheming, saying, I'm God, I stand in the place of God, just like Nebuchadnezzar said, Look at this great Babylon which I have built, and God says, No, I built it. I set up kings and take them down. And so this little horn, this, this power that rules Western Europe, this Roman Catholic Church says, I am God, I can forgive sins, I stand in the place of God. And it's its priests and its um and its prelates, its religious leaders did terrible things in the name of God. And it would make sense that after 1,260 years, that three-and-a-half-year period of time, just take 360 years, or 360, that's how many days in a Jewish year, multiply it by three-and-a-half, you get 1,260 days. A day is a year, 1,260 years of papal control and dominance and warring against the saints, as Daniel 7 describes. After that long, it seems like God should stand up and do something, don't you think? He should stand up and, and, and solve a problem. In fact, in, in uh, Genesis, Cain kills Abel, and God comes to Abel, or Cain right away, and says, "Abel's blood is doing something. Do you remember what it was doing? It's calling out to me, Justice must be served." And, and it seems like all of those martyrs, the blood of those martyrs, must be calling out to God saying, "Do justice." Turn to Revelation chapter 6, and you'll find it's described as the saints under the altar, the altar of incense. These are the martyrs that have died, and it's their blood crying out. And their blood uh, is saying this in verse 10. Revelation 6 verse 10. I think my, my little clicker has, has stopped. Would you mind? There we go. There it is. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long until you avenge? You see, this is the whole point. They're in this judgment scene in heaven. Why? And Daniel tells us it's because of the great things, the pompous things that this little horn was saying, and because it's doing war with the saints. God says, There's a, there, this needs to stop. And so judgment comes. The courtroom scene in Daniel 7 is God's answer to this problem. A divine court is set. A trial is commencing. And and a lot of people, I was just uh, reading a little bit and doing a a little bit of YouTube research, and uh, I watched a guy uh, who kind of carries the evangelical line of thinking about prophecy. And and he said that um, everything was, just as I've said, the lion is Babylon, the bear is Persia, the, the, the leopard is Greece, the terrible beast that does horrible things is Rome. Uh, but then he says the ten kings and the little horn and the Ancient of Days thing that happens in heaven, that's all at the end. He says the Roman Empire will be set up again at some point. We don't know how, but there's going to be 10 kings. We don't know in what succession. And there's going to be this other king that that looks all good, and everybody likes to follow him. And, And then Jesus is going to come, and then all of humanity will stand before the throne of God in this great judgment scene. You know, honestly, I think we're afraid, afraid of that judgment moment. We're afraid because we think, like most people, that when, when this judgment happens, we're going to stand with all of our ugliness. It says it there in verse 26. The court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the, the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve dominions shall serve and obey him. But our thought isn't so much about the end, our thought is about that moment when we're exposed and all our secrets are compared to God's perfect law of love. Will we match up and we have this fear of judgment? But look at the the point. Who is being judged here? The court shall sit in judgment and whose dominion shall be taken away. That little horn, that kingdom that that, uh, rules over the saints for 1260 years and is oppressing them and torturing them and killing them. He will be judged. That nation will be judged. So what is Daniel 7's judgment about? Is it something we need to be afraid of? No, it's not. Because it says that judgment will be given in favor of the saints of the Most High. The whole point is that God's got us. Like, we can trust him. We don't need to be worried about this whole judgment thing because God is going to solve the problem, the problem of oppression that happened for 1,260 years, the problem where God's word was obscured and hidden and chained to pulpits, um, that, that people weren't allowed to read it in their own language. When, when that happens, God has to stand up and avenge, and he does. He stands up and judgment happens. And, and you know what happens as a result of that judgment? In 1798, Napoleon had been conquering all these different nations uh, in in Europe. And every time he, he took a nation he ejected the papacy's influence. All the priests and all the people who had power from the church, they got kicked out of government. Their lands got taken and given back to the people. And, uh, and finally, in 1798, his general, um, after a little thing happens with the papacy, he gets fed up. And uh, Berthier goes into to Rome, to the city of Rome, and he puts the pope in prison. And, and the Bible even tells us that his dominion would be taken away. Just as the Bible predicted, God's judgment leads to the the end of that power. Now, there's other things that happen um, that the Bible predicts will happen, and we'll have to get to that in another chapter. But we see in this story, God is in charge. He can be trusted. Let's do a quick review. We have these four kingdoms that rise and fall. Um, the fourth kingdom is Rome. It breaks up into these smaller divisions, uh, east and west, and then the ten divisions of the west, the ten tribes. And then you have this little horn that comes up among them. And, um, and, and we see all of these, these things happening. The people are oppressed by this little horn. Judgment happens. It's, it's taken down. Its power is removed. But then there's, there's this direction that God is going that goes just even a little farther. Verse 13 and 14 keeps our focus there. Oops. Verses 13 and 14. Did I not put it up here? It says, I saw in the night visions, behold, when the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. I think... And it was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This Son of Man uh, picture that we're given is, is the whole focus. It's not the little horn that we're supposed to be paying attention to. It's the fact that the Son of Man has come. Who, who is this Son of Man? That's a good answer. It's a good guess. And in fact, if you look up Son of Man and just find it everywhere that it's described in the Bible, all the way up until you get to Daniel... Son of man is about people, humans. And in fact, it's usually a little bit of a derogatory phrase until you get to the book of Ezekiel and God over and over and over again points to Ezekiel and say, son of man. <laughs> he's like, he's basically saying, hey, you human, I need you to do something for me. That's, that's the way that son of man is described until you get to Daniel. And in Daniel, you have this this exalted son of man that meets the ancient of days, and dominion is given to the son of man, and he comes and he conquers. Who is the son of man? Well, you, you find Jesus describes it. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, the son of man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says, I'm the son of man, and this is what I came for. And, and he's not just saying, I'm one of you humans. He's pointing back to the story of Daniel. Because keep reading in verse, chapter 12, verse 8. Um, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The little horn in Daniel 7 is said to, to um, change times and laws. And it's important because we're talking about a war between a religious power and God himself. And this religious power says, I'm going to change times and laws. And so while the Catholic Church is saying to everybody, hey, don't worry about that Sabbath thing. We've changed it to Sunday, which they claim to do and continue to claim to do. In fact, I think uh, um, uh, there was a a thing in the news recently, just the last few weeks, that one of these Catholic officials said something like, um, if you want to do what the Bible says, then you should really worship on Saturday like the Seventh-day Adventists do. That was, look it up online. I saw it just a a week ago or so. Um, It's not a a, a mystery. They said, we've changed the the day. But Jesus himself says, the son of man, that's the the conquering figure in Daniel chapter seven, the figure that's responding to the oppression of the little horn who thinks to change times and laws. That guy says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath because I created you. And I established that time of rest for relationship with you. And then when the little, uh, the, the little horn is, uh, is conquering and, and doing these things the Bible describes, Jesus says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus is saying... I'm the son of man that Daniel chapter seven was talking about. And if you're not convinced, keep reading in 25, 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and he will reign forever and ever. And the kingdom will be given to the saints. Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. I'm the conquering king. I'm the one that judges the, the, the powers that oppress. I'm the one that brings justice when the blood of the martyrs is crying out. The Son of Man is coming. He's going to be riding on the clouds. He's going to be coming with all the angels of heaven. It's going to be amazing. And he's, he, he's coming because back then, in the time when Jesus was on the earth, the Son of Man stretched out his arms on the cross. He can come as conquering king because he came to serve and to be a ransom for many. I don't know if you're hearing this for the first time and thinking, there's a lot of weird stuff in there. I still don't understand it. Or if you're hearing this for the 50th time or 500th time and saying, yeah, yeah, I know that. I'm not sure where exactly you might be in this story. But I think it's wise to do what Daniel did. He finished the dream. Everything was over. The messengers were gone. And he said, this is the end of the account. This is is all that I saw. But as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. And my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. You might not understand everything, but the right thing to do is to stop and say, I want to know more. Let let it percolate in your mind. Let it tickle your conscience and say, what does this mean and how does it apply to me? And let the Holy Spirit open the truth up to you. Spend some time studying it, figuring it out, comparing scripture with scripture. God wants you to know the truth, Not just because we're checking the boxes of history, but because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to know that he's got the future in his hands and you don't have to worry. Whether you've made a commitment to walk with Jesus all the way or maybe you're um, just at the beginning of that journey Daniel is inviting you to keep this in your hearts. Not to accept the convenience of a popular religion, but to accept the Son of Man who's who's given his life for you and who's promised to conquer on your behalf. Keep it in your heart. Make sure you know that you're following the Son of Man Jesus himself, and not just some idea, not especially some controlling, manipulative idea that Satan has tweaked and made in the popular culture to make us think that it's the right thing. Follow the son of man, follow God's word with all your heart. Let's stand together and we're going to sing our closing hymn.